It's lovely, wonderful to see you all. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll teach us what it takes to finish the Christian race, that we might glorify you, that we might be safe, uh, and we might live with joy and freedom as you've called us to, and love as well. Amen. Well, what does it take to finish the race? That's our key issue today. You can see that is the issue from chapter 5 and verse 7 there. You were running well. Who prevented you being persuaded of the truth? You were racing along comfortably as Christians. You were joyfully heading towards the end goal, but something happened, or rather someone happened. Someone cut in front of you and tripped you up. I don't know if you remember uh, these two women at all. Uh, It's 1984. It's the uh, LA Olympics. Who is it? Zola Bud in white. Uh, Barefoot, uh, South African runner playing for Great Britain because that's the only way she could get it to the Olympics because of apartheid. Uh, And Mary Decker in red who was the world champion as the women's 3,000 metres. Mary Decker's favourite, odds-on favourite, Zola Bud's new to the scene but rising star. And as the race progressed, Zola Bud kept cutting in front of Mary Decker. It's the most famous moment from the LA Olympics uh, because uh, about the fourth or fifth time that she cut in front of her on turn four, uh, they collided, their legs caught up, and Mary Decker ended up doing that and then ending up out of the race because she injured a hip and could not get back up and continue. Uh, And so cutting is very dangerous. So does anyone remember this moment? Uh, It's 2017, Tour de France, the final sprint on stage four. Peter Sagan sticks out his elbow, uh, it's on the the side, uh, and nudges... Mark Cavendish, who's the favourite for the green jersey, into the wall. Cavendish goes down, two other guys uh, ride over the top of him and they fall on the ground too. Cavendish, broken collarbone, out of the tour. He's gone. Cutting in is incredibly dangerous and no more so when it comes to the Christian race that we're on. And here God's warning us in Galatians, it's entirely possible to let ourselves be caught up in a tangle to be taken out, to be led off course, to crash so that we won't finish. But on the other hand, here's God's encouragement to keep going, that there is a way to run this race confidently and that you can remain on track. It's very easy to do, in fact. But before we get into the passage, uh, I want you to think for a moment yourself and, and finish the sentence that you see on the outline if you have one of those. I've left a blank And I was wondering if you might attempt to fill that in yourself. I'll put it up on the screen as well. Once I've started the Christian race, to get to the end, I need what? Think for a moment. Once I've started the Christian race, to get to the end, I need... Don't call that an answer, it's all right. I figure we can discuss it over breakfast today at Tea and Toast. Uh, what is the answer you would write? Because whatever answer you write, uh, it takes us to the heart of the issue that we're looking at in our passage today. What really is the issue at the heart of the whole letter to the Galatians? 
And depending on how you filled in the blank, you might well need to do some exfoliation. Uh, if you're a man over the age of 30, you'll have no idea what that is. Uh, right? The ladies, they'll know, and the hipster young men will know. Uh, I, I thought it was something to do with autumn leaves falling off trees. Uh, but exfoliation is actually to do with facial scrubs and removing layers of skin. You've got to cut back. Uh, the ladies know. But in the Christian race, it's very easy to gather up extra baggage as we run, such that we fill in the blank the wrong way, and it may well mean that someone has cut in on us and that we've tripped over and been led off track. Think about what you wrote for a sec. In the Christian race, once you've started in the Christian race, to get to the end I need, if your answer was anything other than something to like, I need to keep trusting Jesus then I suggest you might be in need of some serious exfoliation. Or maybe you maybe need some full-scale lopping. Because there's nothing greater or more important or more beneficial for your soul or more glorifying to God than you're finishing the race and being with him in eternity. And if something, whatever it may happen to be, is going to stop you getting there, because you think you need it when you don't, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Now, our passage begins in chapter 4 with an analysis of how it is that the Galatians had been tripped up, how, uh, how the cutting in had gone down, which meant that they were lying bleeding on the side of the track now. If you've been with us over the term, how would the Galatians have filled in the blank? What would they put there now they've been uh, cut in on uh, once I've started the Christian race to get to the end I need to be circumcised that's right I heard someone whispering it I need to be circumcised that's what they write not something you'd expect anyone to write today but then they had been hoodwinked into believing the answer was to have religious surgery in order to prove yourself to God uh, they would write circumcision. The argument went that the mark that God gave to his people, the Jews, uh, that was for them and that made them God's people and so that's what he wants you to get so that you can seal the deal with him. It's in his law after all. You read the Old Testament and it says, get circumcised. But Paul asks the question in chapter 4 verse 21 about whether the Galatians really have read the Jewish law, whether they've heard it properly, because the Jewish law begins not with law, but with promises. And he delves into the story of Abraham to show it. Now, it's a very weird section. You've got to be at the end of chapter 4, and there's a bunch of questions that you might have, but the point that he's making is crystal clear. It's an illustration of how human efforts to force God's hand are always going to fail miserably. You see, Abraham had two sons by two different women. We read the account of that. Uh, in a world under sin and under God's judgment where there was only his curse, God out of nowhere makes incredible promises to Abraham, who's this wandering uh, Aramean nomad. Uh, and he says, I'm going to give you this beautiful land. I'm gonna, you need to go, leave your home and go hundreds of miles away, I'm going to give you land and many descendants. But most important, God's promises 
that from Abraham's family uh, would come God's blessings to all the nations of the world. Through you, all the nations will be blessed. And in the, it's the promise that through his descendants, somehow, somewhere in the future, God was going to overturn the curse that he put on the world because of human sin. And Abraham's pretty stoked with the plan. He's very glad to receive that promise. There's just one problem, which was, he's old and he had no kids, right? If, if, if God's going to bless the world through his descendants and he ain't got none, that's a problem. Um, he's in his 90s, years after the promise has been made and he's still got no children how can God bless the world through his descendants? And so he decides to take matters into his own hands or into his own bedroom, as it was. Um, at his wife's suggestion, he sleeps with her pretty young slave girl, Hagar, and they have a son together, Ishmael. How'd that turn out? Happy family? No, <laughs> no, uh, not very well. Uh, God hammers Abraham for not trusting him. He says, you idiot Abraham, why didn't you trust me? You're going to have a son by your own wife, Sarah, who, mind you, is 90 herself. Uh, good luck, ladies. Uh, <laughs> uh, and you'll name him Isaac, which means laughter, because Sarah's going to think it's a great big joke when you tell her this. Um, but a year later, out Isaac pops and so Abraham's got two sons now to two different women, one the child of the slave because he thought he could take matters into his own hands and force God's plans to happen. The other was, humanly speaking, impossible, a miracle, the child of promise that God made. All Abraham had to do was trust God. And Paul takes that moment of history from the very beginning of the Jewish law and he says to the Galatians, do you want to be under the law? Well, what does it say? It's always pointed to the fact that God works through making promises and keeping them and not by human beings trying to force the issue. And when we do try and force God's hand, it always ends badly. Right? It was pretty rotten. Before Isaac's even born, Hagar despises Sarah. We heard that. She treated her with contempt. She's thinking, I'm the young one. I've got the baby. Right? Uh, uh, Sarah, well, she's got some authority in the family, and so that's bad. And uh, when Abraham, sorry, when Isaac does come along, he's this little boy, and Ishmael, his older half brother, bullies him mercilessly. And in the end, Abraham banishes Hagar and Ishmael to the wilderness because the whole family situation has become so unworkable and terrible. But he was the one to blame, wasn't he? Because he wouldn't trust God that he knew what he was doing and he thought he could make things happen himself, which only God can make happen by promise. Do you see the, Paul point, the point Paul's making when it comes to the gospel and salvation, how his illustration works? If you think you can force God's hand into loving you or saving you by getting circumcised or by the food you eat or don't eat, by... Uh, giving something up for Lent by taking communion even, by crossing yourself. If you think you need any of those things to finish the Christian race, you've made Abraham's mistake. It's not going to work because Christianity is all about being a child of promise. 
Abraham's descendant did come as promised through Isaac's line and it was Jesus Christ and he died on the cross to take away God's curse as promised. He's defeated sin and death and he's the one who's giving God's blessing freely to anyone who will receive him by taking him at his word, by trusting him. It's Christ and Christ alone who saves. And once you accept Jesus, you're adopted by God, you're a child of promise like Isaac and you are a free child. See how Paul ends in verse 31? Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of a free woman. And so before we go any further, it's worth stopping and asking ourselves, whose child am I? I don't mean who are your parents' names, but am I a child of the promise? Have I accepted that there is nothing I can do to force God's hand and earn my way into his family? All I can do is trust that God will fulfill his word to me. Being a child of God is not a matter of having Christian parents. Uh, having a Christian parents is a great thing if you have them, but we're not born into God's family by parental decisions. And we can't become God's children by our own willpower and effort. You can't force God's hand like that. No, we become God's children by trusting, relying on, depending on Jesus. Are you a child of the promise? But let's come back to our passage in this issue of finishing the race because Paul takes that point of the illustration and he says, if you're only in the race in the first place because of God's promise, that makes you a child of promise and it makes you a child of freedom. And so if you're a child of freedom, then what should you do? You should run free. See how he puts it in chapter 5 and verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Those who've cut in on you are trying to elbow you into the wall. They're tripping you up. They're doing that by putting on a yoke. Uh, you know what a yoke is? Uh, oh, not that kind of yoke. That's Y-O-L-K. That's, uh, no, this kind of yoke, Y-O-K-E. Um, it's, it's a bar with shackles used to control things and the shackles go around the neck of the oxen in this case, but yokes were used to uh, control slaves as well. Here's a picture of uh, some slaves in a yoke. You can't go anywhere. You are trapped if you're like that. If you're a child of promise, a child of freedom, why would you want to put those on? If you're a runner in the 3,000 metres, you go as light as possible so that you can actually run free. Zola Bud, she didn't even wear shoes because it was too much weight to add. She was a barefoot runner. Notice he says in verse 1, don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. He uses the word again. Right? Don't submit again to it because they've actually been in that kind of slavery with a yoke on before. Because before coming to Christ and being released, they'd been trapped in their pagan religion. They were worshipping all sorts of false gods with sacrifices and religious rules and feasts and cutting themselves and tattoos, all sorts of things that are part of pagan worship. But you were freed from that. Why would you want to go back under another yoke? Christ has set you free, so 
be free. Now, it might seem like, no pun intended, a small thing to get circumcised as these guys are telling you. But it's, it's not a small thing, it's a big deal, it's a huge deal. Why is, does it matter? I mean, why not just hedge your bets? Well, it matters because of all the devastating consequences that happen if you submit to the yoke. And Paul lists five of them in that next paragraph. We're just going to run through them uh, pretty quickly. Okay? Uh, number one, devastating consequences if you submit to the yoke. Christ will be of no benefit to you. That's in verse 2. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you, if you get yourself... Let you, if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. You're choosing not Christ and his benefits. If you want to go down that path, you think you can earn your way to God by religion, whether it's this religion or another one, uh, it'll be at the cost of all the benefits that Jesus came to give you freely. You'll have had none of them. You'll have no forgiveness. That's a benefit of Christ because you think you'll have earned God's favour. You'll have... No mercy when you stumble in the future because it's on your, your head, it's your efforts. You'll have no one interceding with you before the Father as Jesus does for his children. That's a benefit from him. You'll have no spirit with you to cheer and to guide because Jesus sends him to those who believe uh, as a seal of God's promises to them. You, you forgo all of that and more. You'll have none of the benefits. Second devastating effect of this being shackled by this one small religious rule, actually you'll be shackled to the whole law. Verse 3, again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised, he's obligated to the entire law, right? It's in the Christian race submitting to this one rule, won't be just like wearing gumboots in a race while you run. That, that's hard, but I suppose you could do it. You're not going to win, uh, but at least you'll finish, It'll actually be like chaining yourself to a 10-ton block. You're not going anywhere. Because circumcision is, again, no pun intended, just the tip of the iceberg. All right. It's part of a whole system that you'll become obligated to, which you'll never be able to do because no one ever has been able to do it. Third devastating effect in verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. Not only will you not get the benefits of Jesus Christ, you'll be out of relationship with him and he's the one who life is all about. Because religious legal systems are not about real relationships with God, they're about box ticking, they're about point scoring. Imagine a marriage where uh, <coughs> rule keeping was the only way to keep the other person still here be a horrible marriage, wouldn't it? Right, You step out of line and I'm gone. It's horrible. Some of you know what that's like. Or you've, you've seen something of it in other marriages where it's cold and clinical and one person has to tread on eggshells all the time so as not to experience the other person's displeasure. It's not a relationship, is it? Which is Paul's point. You want justification by law you won't have a relationship with Christ with love and joy and affection are the meat of it. You're, you'll be alienated. Number four devastating effect, same verse. 
Verse 4, you'll have fallen from grace. Well, in their case, they've already fallen. When you think that you can earn your way to God, you're missing out on the fact that God just wants to give you everything. That's what grace is. It's his kindness. It's generosity. Uh, if you want a handy way to remember is, is an old-fashioned thing I learned years ago. Just think of the letters G-R-A-C-E. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's what grace is. He paid everything so that you can have everything and you can have it freely. You can't buy it. If you could buy it, then it's not grace. That's merit. But then there's one final devastating effect of submitting to the yoke of slavery of religious rule-keeping as a means of finishing the race. And that is, you'll miss out on the real deal. Have a look at verse 5. For we eagerly await through the Spirit, by faith, the hope of righteousness. You want to be righteous now by doing stuff, actually... We're waiting for that righteousness one day. Hope in the New Testament is certainty. It's, it's not wishful thinking like we might hope to get a new car for Christmas this year instead of socks and undies, but as if that's going to happen. Right? Right? But hope, as God means it, is certainty, which is why we can eagerly wait for it. It's a joy to wait for it. What are, what are we waiting eagerly for with joy and anticipation? What's our hope? It's for this righteousness and by righteousness the bible means god's declaration on the final day of judgment that we are in the right with him you can't force that you can't twist god's arm into making it happen like abraham thought he might be able to no he just had to wait for god to fulfill his wonderful promise and Paul's point is that you got started trusting Jesus. That's how God received you. That's how you began, isn't it? If you didn't begin like that, then you didn't even make the start line of the race. You're not a Christian. But having begun like that, surely you eagerly await his declaration on the final day that you are in the right with him. It's about trusting his promise. In other words... The way that we begin the Christian life is the way we go on in the Christian life. It's all of grace. It's all God's promise. It's all trust. There's not some alternative fuel. There's not a different set of tyres that you have to pit for so that you can finish. No, the way you get started is the same way you go on. It's by trusting Jesus and receiving his gift of a declaration that you're right with God. You start that way, you end that way, and it's totally freeing in the middle. So don't be shackled again. You'll miss the real deal. Well, what about the cheaters, the ones who've cut in and, of course, such chaos and sown the seeds of doubt that faith in Jesus isn't enough to get you home? What about them? Well, verse 7, you were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? This persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. They may say that they're from God. They may even think that they're from God. They may think themselves pious, but they're not on God's side and what they're teaching is not his message. They're lying. They're cutting you off from the truth. 
So what's going to happen to them in the long run? Halfway through verse 10. Whoever it is that's confusing you will pay the penalty. Peter Sagan might have thought he could get away with elbowing Mark Cavendish into the wall. He did it from the helicopter point of view under a tree. They'd just gone under a tree and he did it. He didn't count on the rest of the cameras of the world that were watching and caught him. And he was disqualified. I think he got a year banned. Uh, he, he paid the penalty and so will the preachers of this false gospel. There is no fooling God. He sees everything. He doesn't need the cameras to know these are wolves who are preying on his sheep and God's not going to take kindly to them. And since their teaching is from the pit of hell, that's where they'll be going. Remember chapter 1. And Paul has absolutely no sympathy for them. Plenty of sympathy for those who are being led astray, but none for the cheaters. They are dividing God's church. They are putting Christians in jeopardy by their teaching. They are snatching the grace of God away from people. In fact, he's so worked up by them, so angered. Look at what he wishes on them in verse 12. I wish, Paul wishes, those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. That, that is a very polite... 20th century way of translating what he wrote. The NIV in 84 captured it more graphically. I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves, right? They want to teach people to cut their genitals for God. I wish they'd take the garden shears to the whole lot. I wish Mrs. Bobbitt would turn up. <laughs> and maybe you're wondering if that's a very Christian attitude. I mean, surely we're called to love and be kind and gracious and moderate. If the fox is in the chicken coop, you don't go and pat it. You go for the jugular before it does. It actually comes from a heart filled with love for God, filled with love for God's gospel, a love for God's word, and a real deep love for God's people. God loves his children, and he wants them to finish the race, and so should we, which might mean saying some very, very hard things in warning. So how does running the Christian race go? You start by trusting Jesus, you go on by trusting Jesus and you finish by trusting Jesus. How does the freedom that he gives us play itself out? Well, it plays itself out in love. Come back to verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. Or verse 13, for you are called to be free, brothers and sisters, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbour as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you'll be consumed by one another. There's a real irony to what was happening to the Christians in Galatia. They've been cutting on, They've been tripped over by people teaching obedience to the law, but they'd missed the whole point of the law themselves. It's there to teach you to love, which is why we were created in the first place, to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and all our strength and to love others as ourselves. 
These are the two greatest commandments on which all the law and the prophets hang. We said that earlier in the service. And it's what we've been saved to do as well. Love God and love people. One of the common complaints the cults make and the Roman Catholic Church makes, the Orthodox Church makes and even the legalists within the Anglican Church make about evangelicals is if we really are saved by grace alone and it's not our efforts at all, then can't we just do what we want because we're free? Grace is just an excuse to sin it up. But actually, sin is what we have been freed from. From hating God, which is the heart of sin, and from hating others, which flows from that. You think of a train. I don't know if you've been on the train recently, the mask restrictions have all left, and so people are you know, feeling free on the trains. Uh, when is a train running totally free? When it's on the tracks or when it's off the tracks? Right? When it's off the tracks, it creates chaos. Right? It, in devastation, it runs through a few houses, you know, it kills a bunch of people and comes to a grinding halt and doesn't go anywhere from there on. That's not freedom. See, we've not just been saved from something, we've also been saved for something. Very important to know what we've been saved for as well as what we've been saved from. The freedom that we have, the freedom that Christ bought for us in his own precious blood, the freedom from religious rules which shackle us to futility is not a selfish freedom. No, the true, it's true freedom to love. To love in the same way that we have been loved. Love because we are children of promise, children of grace, children who've been set free from the law which only brings destruction, saved for a life of joy and service, freely serving our God and Father or the lover of our souls. That's how you run the race. Are you a child of promise? Do you know the freedom that trusting God's promises brings? And are you able to love like he has first loved you because you've been freed? That's the point of the new life he's bringing about in you. Or have you been cut in by someone who's persuaded you you need something else. If that's the case, then you need to exfoliate. You may even need to do some serious lopping. <laughs> Once I've started the Christian race, to get to the end, I need to keep trusting Jesus. He's got me all covered. And he's got you all covered if you'll trust him. Father, we pray, please, that you would prevent us from tripping over, help us to unshackle ourselves from everything that hinders, from teaching that binds us to regulations and help us to uh, love like the Lord Jesus has loved us, help us to run free, not to submit again to slavery, but to cheerfully, joyfully wait for the, uh, the joy of the end when you will declare us righteous because you've promised and you've wiped out our sins. You did it, you paid for it. And we pray that we'll run in a way that brings pleasure to you now, running with that love and service in our heart, loving you with our whole heart and loving others as ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
let's sing.